welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, my friends. Welcome to you all. Uh, if we have not met, I'm Micah. If you have a Bible, you're going to want it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's where we'll be today. Uh, if you didn't know, we are involved in a little church planting endeavor called Awaken East. They, their last preview is this morning, which is super exciting. They're killing it over there at Awaken East. And uh, they will be back on September 17th, the weekend of our kickoff here. And we will pray for them and commission them and send them out. And they will move to weekly Sunday morning worship gatherings on the 24th of September. And then it's off to the races. So um, be in prayer for those guys. We're excited about that. Um, as you turn to 1 Samuel 16, I will tell you this. I was a freshman in high school. Met a girl named Amy Perrin. Uh, Amy, if you listen to the podcast, hi, how are you? Nice to talk to you again. I had a crush on Amy Perrin, big time, uh, when I was a freshman in high school. She was the first redhead that I really had a uh, thing for. Who knew how it would affect my life? You know, if you know me now, I married a redhead. I had three redhead daughters, and my dog actually has red hair. So they're everywhere. She, <laughs> thanks to Amy Perrin, changed the course of my life forever. Uh, in all seriousness, I had a I was major crush on her, and I asked her to the school dance. Well, little did I know that Amy came from um, a, a home that was a little more conservative than, than mine, and uh, she was not allowed to dance, and so she, she said, I can't go to the dance because I can't dance with you, which would have been a real downer, right, if you go to the dance but then you can't dance. Or it would have been like every other high school dance where people go and nobody dances. <laughs> Either way, I don't know. But... She couldn't go to the dance, but she invited me to her youth group, so as a guy who doesn't like to take no for an answer, or who would be persistent, let's just say that, relentless, some might call me, I said, sure, let's do this. So I go to her youth group event, and it happened to be that she went to the Summit Avenue Assemblies of God Church, which is on the corner of Victoria and Summit. Now, I grew up in a very, very Baptist, like not charismatic church at all. So we, there were really only two people that we've prayed to, the Father and Jesus, right? Um, didn't really know much about the Spirit, but if you know the Assemblies of God and charismatic folks, like, I, I was introduced to the Holy Spirit of God as a freshman in high school at Amy Perrin's youth group. It was fantastic. People were singing, raising hands, dancing around. There may have been people speaking in tongues. It wasn't, like, wild and crazy, like maybe you've, you've seen some of these videos on YouTube, or, like, nobody was handling snakes or barking, like, dogs or chickens or anything. But it was nothing like I had ever experienced in my life. And then I went to college, and uh, Laura and I, at this point, I had met Laura. I, was, I had a crush on her, and we were invited to go to uh, her roommate's, uh, to a Bible study that her roommate was going to. Now, Misty grew up in the South, and she was a part of a very, very charismatic church in the South. So she found uh, some other folks uh, who, where she would be right at home with in Denver and invited us to this Bible study, which was in the ballroom of a hotel. You know it's going to be good when it's in the ballroom of, of a hotel off of I-70. And we showed up, and this was nuts. Like, people were barking and rolling around in the aisles, and it was like nothing I had ever seen in my life. And I got sort of a rude awakening to this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I make light of that, and I, and I actually don't, uh, it, it's, it's not a joking matter. Like, this is a very, this is a really big and a really important part of Christian theology, the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that in this passage we're going to study. 
And a couple of questions kind of rise to the surface. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 16. This is right in the middle of uh, Saul's kingship going to David's kingship. If you know this, it's before David and Goliath, if you know that story. Uh, David has been anointed the king, so he's president-elect, but he hasn't actually taken office yet, right? Um, So this is just a little blip in the story, the part that we're going to focus on, but it actually has huge implications, and it brings about a a couple of really, really big questions that I want to wrestle with this morning. So welcome to Awaken. This is our summer series called Lost in Translation, where we do this kind of work. We just find bizarre, hard-to-interpret, interesting, difficult passages, and we try to make a little bit of sense of them. So are you ready? Okay, 1 Samuel 16, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to stand, and we'll read starting in verse 14. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let, uh, Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar, He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and he's a fine-looking man. And the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. And whenever the Spirit from God came to Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we enter into this bizarre passage about your spirit leaving and you sending evil spirits to torment people, uh, I pray that you might meet us in the midst of this as we question and wrestle and wonder what does this mean and uh, what does it say about you and who you are, uh, that by your spirit you would be present in our midst and you would encourage us, uh, invite us, call us to deeper faith and walking out uh, towards you, what it means to be the people of God. So invite us, I pray, uh, encourage us, move us, God, towards you. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So there you have it, friends. The spirit leaves Saul and then God sends an evil spirit to torment him. (laughs) Oh man, this puts us seemingly smack dab in the middle of two questions. One is, um, what's the nature of evil spirits and how does God interact with them in the Bible? Right? That's one question that arises. The other one is, um, if God is Trinity, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this, if God is Trinity, then how does the Holy Spirit function in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially on this side of Pentecost? Right? So that's the deep end of the theological pool. We'll end there. And then I actually want to spend some time in response um, as we come to the table and uh, a, little, a, a bit of prayer. So, first, does God, ha- does God have evil spirits on retainer, and does God ex- use them to execute judgment? That's kind of the question we're asking, right? Um, 
If you didn't know the, the definition of retainer, uh, it's also something that is in people's mouths, most often teenagers, but I've learned since last hour, some adults. Any, anyone have a retainer in the room? Yeah, a couple. So a retainer is not just something that goes in your mouth, but it's also a fee paid in advance to someone, especially an attorney, in order to secure or keep their services when required. So does God have the demons on retainer? That's the question. That's my joke for today. I've been in ministry for about 18 years, and I've seen a lot of things. I've heard a lot of conversations, or I've been a part of a lot of conversations where I've heard a lot of things. One of the things that comes up over and over and over again is when bad things happen to people, they ask the question, is God punishing me? Right? When bad things happen in our lives, there's this insidious thought and teaching out there from some that you must deserve whatever bad thing is happening to you, and in fact, it's punishment for something from God. And so this question of, is God punishing me? And in this case, is God, does God have the demons, the evil spirits on retainer for whenever God needs them to torment or punish someone for something that they've done? That's kind of what's being said and what is being implied. And before we dive into this, I'll just say, um, this is a very, very nuanced conversation, and there's a ton of study and a lot of books and a lot of things we could do. I'm going to, like, scratch the surface on both questions today. So if you think, Mike, you didn't talk about that, and you send me an email, my reply will be to you, I know, period, Micah. Because I've got 25 minutes, okay? Um, so cut me a little bit of slack. We're going to try to scratch the surface on these. Based on the first reading of the passage, though, it would appear that God who is sovereign over all, including evil spirits and demons and whatnot, has them on retainer and is using them to do his bidding to torment King Saul. So a little bit of background in the story. Saul, he's the first king of Israel. The Israelites come out of Egypt with the prince of Egypt, Joseph, uh, not Joseph, Moses, and uh, they come into the land and they're wandering and then they get into the promised land and they don't need a king because God is their king, and, but they say, we want a king, and God's like, you don't need a king, but they want one, and so God relents and gives them a king, and that first king is Saul. We're in between Saul and David, who's the next king, okay? Uh, in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, we get an important part to this story where it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Saul, or Saul is anointed with oil by uh, Samuel, who's kind of like the the grand poobah, the overseer, the spiritual overseer of Israel at this point. Uh, and he, Samuel anoints Saul, and it says that the spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, and he is anointed in that way. But between that moment and this moment, Saul makes a whole bunch of choices. Saul is told explicitly not to do some things, and he does them. He's told explicitly to do some things, and he doesn't do them. So you have in the midst of 1 uh, Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 16, Saul is anointed as king and the spirit of the Lord is on him and then the spirit of the Lord leaves him. So how do you understand that? How exactly do we want to talk about that? And why does God send an evil spirit to torment him? It appears that that's exactly what's happening. Uh, the result of these decisions that Saul makes not only includes the withdrawal of God's spirit, but the sending of evil spirits by God, right? So here's the nexus of the difficulty with this passage. I think it's possible, and I think one, um, it's one thing to say that sometimes we suffer the consequences of our own decisions, right? You've heard the phrase, you reap what you sow, right? So there's one way to think about this where, for Saul, he's made a bunch of decisions that have led him to this point and in fact, God, the perfect judge, or the only one who sees all and can actually pronounce whatever consequence 
for whatever decision has been made. Uh, it's one thing to say that, that Saul makes a bunch of decisions and God says, essentially, here are the consequences for those decisions, right? And I think we have to preserve that possibility because we see it in the, in the text again and again. And we, we probably even testify to it in our own lives where we've reaped what we've sown, right? And we suffer the consequences of decisions that we've made. It's one thing to say that, and God in that case isn't the one saying, let's see what I'm going to do to punish you, but rather just the one saying, here's what happens when you do that, right? As the judge, right? He sits in that seat because only God can. It's one thing to say that. It's a whole other thing to say that God employs demons and beings to pursue you and uh, punish you for something that you might have done. That's a whole nother category of crazy. Now, you might say to me, well, what about the book of Job? Because that's kind of what's happening in that book, if you know. But I would say, in that case, the Satan, the adversary, comes to God and has this conversation. This is Jewish apocalyptic literature, not to be taken literally. Important. God has this conversation with the Satan, the adversary, and the, and the adversary says, can I go to Job and can I test him? Can I bring uh, you know, all these horrible things on? And God sort of relents, right? It's not God who's doing the bidding, but rather allowing or permitting. That's a whole different, that's, that has enough troubling parts to it, but at least it's not God saying, uh, here's what I need. I need you, demon A, to come and pursue this guy because he's making a mess of it. That's problematic on a lot of levels. So three options emerge as you think, or four actually, as you think about God employing an evil spirit, right? And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. A couple of ways that I think you can interpret this, and I'll just offer them for your consideration. One, God does exactly that. God employs an evil spirit to torment and pursue and, and punish Saul. Because, in fact, after all, God is God. God can do what God wants to do. God is sovereign. He's in control. And if God wants to use a demon to punish somebody for, for bad choices that they've made, then that's God's prerogative. That's one way to think about it. Some people think about it that way. I would not recommend that because of a lot of reasons. I could talk to you later. All right? And I'm not going to spend any more time on that because I think it's that bad of an idea. Number two, uh, a, a quite um, interesting Hebrew literary term. It's called the metomony of the subject. I'll put it up here on the screen so you know what it is. You can use this later at brunch if you'd like, okay? The metomony of the subject, here it is in a, in, a, in, a, in a brief thumbnail sketch. The Lord allows or permits something to happen and the writer attributes that to the character or the person of God. So one author says that what God permits, he is stated in the Bible to perform. God not, uh, didn't directly send upon Saul an evil spirit, but rather allows it to happen in view of Saul's propensity for bad decisions and the consequences of those. One author says it this way, by the successive acts of rebellion against the will and law of God, King Saul left himself open to the influence of demonic presence or things of that nature, right? So it's not necessarily that God is the one commanding, but this is a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's a literary device where what God allows or permits is then attributed to the character of the person or the subject, right? Metomony of the subject. That's one way to think about it. Another way is that uh, it's not a demonic spirit at all, but something else. If you know language or you have any interest in language, you know that often one word can mean multiple things, right? In English, we have a lot of words. In Hebrew, there are less words. So when a word is used, it has a semantic range that includes lots of different meanings, and it's up to the 
reader and the context to determine what it actually means. You still track him. So, one of the ways you can interpret ruach ra'ah is evil spirit or spirit and evil, right? Ruach is the word that's being translated spirit. It's spirit, breath, or wind in Hebrew. But it can also mean even disposition of or mind or attitude, right? So that's one way you could translate the word ruach. Ra'ah is often translated evil, but it can also mean bad, unhappy, or sad heart or mind. So if you're following what's happening here, the translators make a decision about how to translate that and what words to give it. One of the possible renderings of ruach ra'ah is that Saul is given or Saul has a distressing or sad disposition of the mind. Which makes a little bit more sense that David is employed to come and play music for Saul's sadness or craziness in the head. You tracking? So one of the ways you can read this is that it's not a demonic spirit at all, but rather Saul has some kind of sadness or or anxiety or what we would call mental illness in today's modern language, and David comes and plays music whenever Saul has an episode. That's one way people read this. The last way that I'll offer to you, which I think probably makes the most sense, is this. And it's how the words are used previously. Ruach if you know Hebrew, shows up at the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was a sp- the Spirit of God hovering over the formless and the void. So the Spirit, the Ruach, is the one hovering over creation, and what happens when Ruach is used in Genesis 1, what comes forth from it is tov, this Hebrew word for good. So when ruach is used previously in the text, it's for life, it's creation, it's generativity, it's blessing. Often the ruach of wisdom is employed, or a, uh, a ruach of, of, of blessing or anointing is on someone. So previously in the text, when ruach is used, we never think of it as a celestial being, is the point I'm making. Rather, it's connected to that which is good, or what the ruach brings forth is tov, goodness, blessing, Uh, delight, uh, wisdom, until this point when it's connected to ra'ah, evil. So one could argue that based on how the words are used, the writer is saying this is a definitive moment where previously when the ruach is at loose in the world, what happens is goodness, tov, blessing, delight, wisdom. But when a leader's heart turns in on themselves and they no longer are in service of God's purposes in the world, what happens is not blessing, delight, good, but actually ra'ah, the opposite of that. And, and if you read deeper, David, ironically enough in the story, says that he's a fine-looking man. The derivative of that word, it's tov. So one could argue, and this is actually how I would read it, that in this passage, uh, there it is right there, I found it. Uh, that in this passage, what seems to fit the most is that Saul, who's a leader that's being sort of blown by the wind to and fro, is making poor choices that lead to the opposite of tov and blessing and generativity. And that the writer is making a very clear word choice to say that the ruach is no longer in service of that, but is in service of this. And that Saul's heart is headed in this direction and is turned in on himself. So to sum it up, the idea of an evil spirit tormenting Saul, I would say it's not a demon, it's not an angelic celestial being, And that God is not the one doing the bidding or commanding, but rather that Saul, 
is a heart whose leader is no longer for tov and blessing for the people of God. And that the ruach ra'ah, the evil spirit, is in contrast to the way that the word has been used previously in the text. So there you have it. That's my two cents on that, friends. The last question. So the evil spirit being tormenting Saul is one. And then the last question is, um, does the spirit of God leave? Because it says right at the beginning, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, as I said before, I grew up in a tradition in a church where we, we loved God the Father and we loved Jesus, but there wasn't a lot of talk about the Spirit of God. And if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, that's to my detriment and those of us who grew up in that setting. is That's a detriment. I, uh, Richard Rohr, who just released a book called The Divine Dance, I had the honor and privilege to spend a little bit of time with him, and he quoted this guy named Karl Rahner. He's a German Jesuit, and Rahner says that if you were to take out the Spirit... Out of the liturgy of the church, 98% would remain unchanged. Which is to say, there isn't a lot of talk about the Spirit. And yet, Rohr argues that if you do not begin with Trinity, when we're talking about the nature of God, if you do not begin with Father, Son, and Spirit in loving, self-giving relationship with one another, blessing and generativity abounding, then you miss out on what God invites creation and humanity into and how the cross is connected to that. So this is a big deal. Can the Spirit of God leave? Right? As people who follow Jesus on this side of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God is unleashed in the world to empower the church and indwell the church, can the Spirit leave those by faith who have entered this family? So that's what's at stake. Two categories that I think are helpful for us as we unpack this and we move towards the table. Those two words are anointing and indwelling. In the Old Testament, when you find the Spirit, and, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, theologians have a really difficult time with this one because there's not a lot of material in the Old Testament to really kind of understand a theology of the Spirit, right, as we would with New Testament material. But in the Old Testament, what you often have is an anointing that comes on someone and leaves them, so it's episodic. And it's different, I would argue, than an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So you think about... Esther, for such a time as this, there is an anointing on her voice, her leadership, and for that season and time. You think about the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. For a season, there is an anointing or a special quality to their voice, and it brings forth certain things in the world. You think about the kings, Saul, David, Josiah. There's an anointing that's given, and it's episodic. It comes and it goes. You think about people in our day and age like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or MLK, right? There was like some kind of special anointing on their life, for lack of a better term. That is very different than what we see in the New Testament in the book of Acts. I'll read a couple of passages where we find Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving, right? But in a moment, in a, in a bit, the Spirit will come and will comfort you and empower you and indwell you. So previously, if you've watched Indiana Jones, you know that the Spirit of God rests in the ark. And when you open it, your face melts off. So in the Old Testament, we know that the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory of God, to use a very technical term, rests in the Ark of the Covenant. And that is in the temple in the holiest of holies, which one person can see one time a year. 
right? That was the high priest. They would put tassels on his dress and bells. So when he walked in, they'd tie a rope to his foot. So when he walked in to be in the presence of the Spirit of God, if anything was wrong or he didn't wash certain things, he would die immediately and they'd pull him out because the bells would stop ringing. No joke. In the story of Jesus and the crucifixion, the temple tears, the, the curtain tears, and symbolically what happens is something shifts where the Spirit of God which dwelled in the Holy of Holies now, according to the book of Acts, dwells in you and I by faith in Christ. Here's what Peter says, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, BT dubs, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It's not a Christian idea. The Jews would celebrate four different festivals every year. Pentecost was one of them. They celebrated the giving of the law to Charlton Heston at Sinai. <laughs> God says, here's the Ten Commandments in Torah, which actually many Jews would believe was the Spirit of God given to them to empower them to be God's people, ironically enough. That's what's being celebrated at Pentecost. So, Peter says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Of course they were. They were in Jerusalem, celebrating Pentecost. Suddenly, a sound like a rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as of fire being distributed and resting on them. They were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit enabled them to speak. People watching are thinking, these people are hammered. Peter says, it's only nine. That doesn't happen until later. It's not that we're drunk, but it's that the Spirit of God has been given to empower. He says, Jesus came, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and confirms that he's the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. He goes on to say, God raised up this Jesus, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. Right? So, anointing, indwelling. According to the New Testament, those who by faith enter into this family of God are empowered and indwelled. The Spirit no longer rests in the temple, but actually rests in the little temples, little Christ, that's what Christian means. You and I, who by faith, are a part of this family of God. So what, Micah? That's really interesting. I'll say this as we close this morning and we move towards the table. The Spirit of God is one of those things that is very hard to talk definitively or scientifically or empirically about. It just is. There have been moments in my life where I have experienced things and I have no explanation for it other than the spirit and the power of the resurrected God alive and at work in the world. There's no, there's no other way to explain it. And we could probably share stories of moments where people have been healed or new things were born. When the spirit's at work, often new creation, new things are happening. Where you've been given discernment or guidance or wisdom about something that was kind of beyond your capacity or ability. These are the things that often happen when the Spirit of God is at work. New creation, new birth, wisdom, guidance, healing. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to open the door. I have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe nothing, but maybe something. We're going to come to the table. We're going to receive the sacrament. And as we sing and respond... I'm going to just invite us to times of prayer as we sing verses of a hymn that is very familiar. It's called Lead On, O King Eternal. And some of these verses and words in there are connected to some of these themes of the Holy Spirit's work in the world and in our lives. 
And so I'm going to invite you to a time of prayer. There are kneelers in the pews, and there's kneelers up here. You're welcome to use them. The prayer space is available. But we're just going to open the door and see what happens. My hope and prayer is that some of you have an experience this morning where we talk about Sundays where we want to set the table for the people of God to feast and to participate and experience God's presence. So I hope that that happens. I pray that that happens. We've worked really hard to help make that happen. We've done everything we can. So this morning before you all came, we prayed, God, here are the things we have. They're not meaningless, and they're not worth nothing. In fact, they're worth a lot because we give them with sincere hearts. But they can only do so much. And so Holy Spirit, breathe life into these things, these words and these songs and this table, so that the people of God feast in the presence of God. That's the hope. So, here we go. Pray with me. I'll lead you into a time of silence, and we'll begin to move towards the table in response. God, this morning, we started 3,000 years ago with a story about your spirit departing and evil spirits tormenting King Saul. And we've made our way to, sometimes we reap the consequences of the decisions that we make. And when a heart is turned in on itself, it no longer serves tov, goodness, generosity, generativity in the world. And that's what you're about, and that's what you're up to. And God, we trust that those that by faith enter into relationship with you are given a gift of the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrected Christ. That same spirit is present and available to us and for us as your church to empower us and enable us to be your people in the world. And so in these next few moments of silence, I pray that whatever is needed would come to the surface, whether it's healing or comfort or discernment and wisdom or a new beginning, that you might bring it to the surface so that it's fresh in our hearts. So Holy Spirit, speak. Grace and peace, my friends. Stick around, talk to folks about serving and volunteering. There's free lunch downstairs if you don't have lunch plans. See you there. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.